Good morning, church. My name is Jake Sartain. And in case I'm someone new to you, uh, me and my family just recently moved up to the Portland area, January at the beginning of this year, 2020, which has proven to be quite the epic year. Um, but we moved from Southern Oregon where I spent the last nine years or so, uh, really all my adult life uh, in full-time vocational ministry there. And God blessed me with a wonderful family, my beautiful wife, Haley, and our two little ones, Chase, he's five, and my daughter, Bria, she's two years old, but very excited to be celebrating her third birthday uh, this upcoming month. So anyways, I'm excited to be here and to open up the scriptures with you. So if you have your Bible handy, go ahead and open it. And we will be looking at Matthew chapter six, specifically verses 16 through 18, as we continue in our series, The Way of Jesus. So again, Matthew six, beginning in verse 16, Jesus said this, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, verse 17, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And yes, that is right. Today we're gonna to be talking about what's probably literally nobody's favorite subject, and that is fasting. Um, but it's an interesting note that jumped out at me when I read this. Uh, verse 16, the first three words there, when you fast, not if you fast. Jesus evidently assumed and expected that his followers, that we as born again Christians, that we would be people who fast and make that a part of our rhythm. And uh, I don't know about you, but that's something that to me kind of was surprising because I grew up in the church. Uh, my, my parents uh, raised me in the way of Jesus. And uh, in my whole life, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've heard fasting uh, taught about in church. And I could probably count on both of my hands the number of times that I've personally fasted. But uh, I was also interested or, or surprised, pardon me, to find out that that's not been true for most Christians throughout most of church history. In fact, throughout most of church history, followers of Jesus have really believed that practicing this spiritual practice of fasting is a really crucially important part of being one of Jesus's disciples. And so because we're not as familiar with it um, as maybe others have been in the past throughout church history, uh, let's just take some time before we come back to our text uh, and just really kind of talk about one, what is fasting? Why do we do it? And uh, what, what's going on here? And then we'll come back and, and go through these three verses. So first, what is fasting? Simply put, and no big shocker here, fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. Fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose. And the question becomes, well, what is that spiritual purpose? There's, 
physical purposes. There's health-related purposes and benefits, and that's uh, icing on the cake. But the primary we, we reason why we do it is not for the physical benefits, rather for the spiritual. And so if fasting is refraining from food for a spiritual purpose, what is that purpose? And before we unpack that, I'd like to just briefly uh, lift up two things that I believe are not the purpose of fasting. Number one, we do not fast as a way to manipulate or obligate God to give us our way. It's not a hunger strike. Uh, it's not to be viewed as a way to kind of twist God's arm into giving us what we want. That's not a good or right or healthy way to approach this practice. And secondly, and very similar to that with a slight nuanced difference, we do not fast to somehow earn or merit God's favor and his love and his forgiveness and so forth. In fact, that would be contrary to the gospel we love and we believe and we are taught in the word of God. We believe as Christians that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not in what we have done, but by faith in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. We're saved by grace, and grace is unmerited, unearned, not deserved favor. And so uh, we don't wanna view fasting in, in those ways, but that leads right into what the purpose of fasting is, spiritually speaking, uh, for us uh, as we look to do what Jesus is teaching us about and assuming we will do as his people. Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, fasting is feasting on God. Fasting is a way to cultivate our hunger for God. It's, it's about saying no to the flesh and detaching from it and really looking to him to draw near to God and, and enjoying that he draws near to us. We don't have to white knuckle it and say, I'm, I'm gonna fast so that God will be pleased with me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna deny myself so that I can be blessed by God and loved by God and enjoy a relationship with God. No, I believe the Lord would say to you and to me, hey, you are loved in Christ. You are blessed. You are highly favored. And so come on in. This practice is almost like a beautiful invitation to experience more of his presence in our lives by grace through faith, saying no to the flesh and, and being led by the spirit. It's, it's this interesting dynamic fasting where you're, you're saying for a, a fixed amount of time, instead of being dictated and driven by my physical bodily needs, instead of listening and obeying and responding to the growling of my stomach, instead, I'm gonna listen and obey and respond to the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna look to Him. I'm gonna fast and pray and worship. I'm gonna draw near to Him and by his grace, 
in this interesting practice and it is interesting it's, it's almost kind of weird like who does that we love food um, and that's probably why this practice doesn't get a lot of press we don't like to not eat but it can be in Christ a very powerful and meaningful practice check out uh, what Romans 8 verses 12 through 13 says it says therefore brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Jesus doesn't want us to live according to the flesh. He doesn't want us to, to live for and be motivated by temporal, earthly, physical things. Now, as followers of Jesus, as Bible-believing Christians, we are absolutely called to take care of our earthly and temporal responsibilities. We're called to be faithful stewards, absolutely. Yet underneath that, we are to seek first his kingdom, not my own little kingdom, doing my own little thing. His glory, his righteousness. We are to live for eternal things, not temporal things. We're not to live to please men. We're to live to please God. And so uh, Romans is, is, is here saying where we have this obligation not to live according to the flesh, but by the spirit. And I'd like to point out also that by flesh, we don't mean to say that everything physical or temporal is bad or wrong. No, uh, God created the physical world, God created the spiritual world. He created us as both spiritual and physical beings, as human beings. God created both, both are good, yet both can be corrupted. And so uh, this, this practice of fasting can be helpful. And I love the way that James uh, talks about temptation and sin. And I think it's helpful for uh, our, our passage in our text concerning fasting. James 1, 14 and 15 says, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So we have these desires, our, our, our flesh, we have these disordered desires that draw us away from God, away from what God says is good. We're tempted when we're drawn away by these desires and enticed then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And so in fasting, in a very practical way, we're able to say no to food. And in saying no to food, that can even help us uh, to say no to sin, to say no to the flesh, to these disordered desires that we have pull us away from God. And when we're saying no to those desires and we're setting apart real time with an intentional effort to listen and respond and obey to the Holy Spirit, something beautiful uh, can really happen. If you still have your Bible handy, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter two. And we're gonna look at Genesis 2, 7, and then also a couple verses in chapter three. But I wanna look at the way these things kind of play out in the Genesis account that 
uh, well, all of the stuff we've been talking about and how we are made as humans as both spiritual and physical beings. It's been so, it's been that way from the beginning. Verse seven of Genesis two. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. So there is this physical form, the dust of the earth. God forms a man. I wonder what that really looked like in all practicality and reality. I don't know. But we can take from this that he formed a physical form. And then it says, it's really interesting, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And that word breath there is ruach in the Hebrew, and it can also be translated spirit. So God breathes ruach, spirit, into the man, and human is both material and immaterial, physical and spiritual. And again, both are good and created by God, yet both can be corrupted. And uh, all throughout the scriptures, from the beginning all the way throughout, God connects the heart with the body. And the Genesis story continues. God creates man in his image and for his own glory. And, and God purposes for humanity to reflect his character and his nature and his glory, being fruitful and multiplying, going out and taking dominion in all of creation and spreading God's life and light and love throughout the world. Yet, humans fail to do what they are purposed to do. Humans sin. You know the story. It's, it's the fall of humanity and all of creation for that matter. And the word sin simply means to miss the mark of God's holiness. But I also think it's helpful to think of it in, in this, this other way, um, this idea that, man, sin is to fail to do what God has purposed for us to do. Man sins, and instead of spreading God's life and light and love throughout the world, Man goes out and, and through man comes sin and darkness and death throughout the world. It's interesting stuff. And one interesting note that I'd like to point out in light of our discussion with fasting is this, that original sin and the fall of humanity had to do with food and humans' inability to refrain from eating it. And it's interesting. I, I think that if we're honest, food can have more power over us than we'd like to think sometimes. And I'm not trying to reduce what happened at the fall to just that. I think that would be inappropriate. Um, clearly a lot is going on. Satan, the tempter, slithers his way into the Genesis story. And what does he do? He challenges God's vision for human flourishing. He challenges God's definition of right and wrong. He challenges God's word and he challenges humans to, to no longer trust God, but to rather trust their own instincts and his voice, his hiss, the serpent, you know, instead of trusting God. And that's what they do. And humanity fails to do what it is purposed to do. We sin. 
Again, the scriptures connect the heart with the body. And though there's nothing inherently wrong with eating, it's interesting to me that, that the spiritual dynamic of the fall is tied to this physical act of eating the forbidden fruit. It's almost as if when they sink their teeth into that fruit, whatever kind of fruit it was, it's as if they're sinking their teeth into sin and death for the very first time. And so the fall happens. It's a huge bummer. And because of that, they're no longer able to stay in Eden, the place of blessing and enjoying this, this presence of God there and that beautiful situation that they had and were created in. And instead, they are forced to leave the place of blessing and they're sent out with a curse. It's sad in a lot of ways. But then in chapter three, look on the next page, there's this sudden burst of light and hope right in the middle of the curse. It's amazing to me. I love our God. He's mid-sentence in, in giving the curse to the serpent and the woman and the man. Yet there is where we find the first mention of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Check it out. Genesis 3, verse 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He, speaking of Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel, pointing forward to his death. And then verse 16 goes on and the curse continues on, you know, to the woman. But there is this burst of light and hope. And, and beginning here, all of the Old Testament begins to point forward to one who was promised to come and reverse what, what took place in the Garden of Eden, to reverse the curse, to conquer and overcome sin and death and Satan, whereas humanity failed to do so. And so we continue to read through our Old Testament and God's people continue to look forward to this promised one. Uh, we find out that he is going to be this king who will rule and reign in righteousness. But then the Old Testament comes to an end. And for 400 years, heaven is silent. There are at least one or maybe two blank pages in between Malachi and Matthew representing this silent 400 year period where there were no prophets of God speaking the word of God to the people of God. But then Matthew begins our New Testament. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. And John the Baptist hits the scene. And he hits the scene like a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for him. Him spoken of of old in Genesis 3:15. The promised one of old had come. 
and where uh, Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant, Luke presents Jesus as a perfect and relatable man, and John presents Jesus as divine, as God, Matthew begins our New Testament by presenting Jesus Christ as just that, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of old who shows up to set us free. It's beautiful. And there are many parallels that can be drawn between the Genesis story with Adam and the Matthew account, uh, you know, the gospel account with Jesus. I'm not gonna try and do a comprehensive job of laying out all of those parallels, but I do wanna point out just a couple or a few because it's beautiful the way uh, Jesus really plays out the Genesis story and leads us in a new and better way. So chapter one in Matthew, Jesus is presented as king. There's this whole long list of names that is actually quite meaningful. Um, but then in, in Matthew three, even as Adam received the breath of life, the Ruach, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, Matthew chapter three, at Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. And then in Matthew four, Jesus fasts, back to fasting, Jesus fasts for 40 days, which is incredible to me. He, he says no to food, like we were talking about before with James and Romans. Jesus says no to food and then is ready when the old serpent, Satan, the tempter, slithers his way into the Matthew story. Jesus in the wilderness, he's hungry, and the serpent comes tempting. But where the first Adam failed, when, when there was temptation, both in Genesis and in Matthew 4, temptation involving food, temptation involving trusting the word of God and understanding rightly the word of God, temptation involving, uh, the, the, the temptation to, to rebel against God and his plan and his will, and also involving coming underneath Satan's dominion. Satan literally tries to get Jesus to bow down to him so that Jesus can sidestep the cross and rule and reign with instant gratification. Just come under my dominion the tempter is trying to convince Jesus. Yet, Jesus does not fail where we failed, where Adam and Eve failed. Adam and Eve are our, represent, uh, our represent, representatives, excuse me. Jesus Christ overcomes sin and death and Satan. And he ultimately overcomes all of those things on the cross and when he rose from the dead. But then, I love this, instead of a, a sinful couple, Adam and Eve, who fail to do what they're purposed to do, they sin and they are cursed and they go forth and humanity spreads darkness and sin and death. Jesus, he goes forth from that wilderness experience and he begins doing what humanity was purposed to do all along. He begins spreading the life and light and love of the Father. He brings healing and restoration to people in a beautiful way. And instead of a proclamation of a curse on humanity, like in Genesis three, in Matthew five, I just gotta read verse one. When Jesus saw the crowds, 
he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And the first thing out of his mouth is not the curse, but rather this proclamation of blessing, the Beatitudes. And, and he begins to teach them in the way of Jesus, our current series right now. And among other things, in chapter five, Jesus really gets to the heart. He, he holds up examples like murder or adultery, and he, he demonstrates that it's possible to refrain from outward sin and still completely miss it in the heart, to still be in sin in the heart. At other times, Jesus, there's one other time Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They were whitewashed, beautiful on the outside, but on the inside of a tomb is darkness and death and dry bones. Jesus says, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm after your heart. He wants to transform us from the inside out. And then in chapter six, where our text is found, Jesus takes it even a step further to say that you can even be doing good outwardly. Sp spiritual practices, these spiritual disciplines. He talks about giving, he talks about praying, and then our text today, he talks about fasting. You can even be doing these outward good things, but in our sinful nature, man, we, we found a way to even mess up good things internally in our heart. Jesus is after our heart. And so that, that brings us back, right back to our text. And uh, we're gonna get into verses 16, 17, and 18. First though, I wanna read Matthew 6, verse one with you. It says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And I read that verse because that verse is really the foundation and the thrust of the rest of the, the passage. Jesus is talking about practicing your righteousness in verse one, and then he goes through three spiritual practices that are right. But he says, don't do it to be seen by men. Rather, these things are meant to be between you and the Father in heaven, to be seen by him. And so we've already looked at generous living. We've already looked at prayer. Let's look at, at our text, beginning in verse 16 regarding fasting. And again, it's not if, but when, verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Now, I'm going to pause right there. But in these three verses, we see a negative command, a positive command, and a promise. And in verse 16, we find that negative command. He's saying, don't fast like the hypocrites do. To be seen by men, no, 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 don't do that. I like what the NIV commentary said about this verse. Such voluntary fasts, the Pharisees would fast usually twice a week. Such voluntary fasts provided marvelous opportunities for outward religious showmanship to gain a reputation for piety. 
The point is not that there was no genuine contrition, but that these hypocrites were purposefully drawing attention to themselves. I also love the way Matthew Henry put it in his commentary. He says, they proclaimed their fasting. They proclaimed it and they managed it so that all who saw them might take notice that it was a fasting day with them. Even on these days, they appeared in the streets, whereas they should have been in their closets and they affected a downcast look, a melancholy countenance, a slow and solemn pace. And I love this part. They perfectly disfigured themselves. They perfectly disfigured themselves that men might see how often they fasted and might extol them as devout and mortified men. First, a negative command, verse 16. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't play this game of religious showmanship when you're really far from God in your heart. But then verse 17 continues with a positive command, verse 17 through the first part of 18. But, but is a contrast conjunction. In contrast to that and that way of going about it, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, maintain basic hygiene. Uh, we don't need to take this too literally and go to our pantries and dump cooking oil you know, on our heads. No, just maintain basic hygiene to not raise any eyebrows or what's that guy up to? Uh, no, it's not about being seen by men. Maintain basic hygiene so that, verse 18, it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. So these two commands, one pause or one negative, one positive, they, they work together and, and get at the motivation of our heart. It's not about, it's not about being secretive. Um, when I was 18, I lived in a house with eight other guys. We were in the school of ministry and we ate every meal together all day. We were basically together all day, every day. Um, but one of my friends, he decided to fast every once in a while but he was scared that he would lose his reward if anybody knew. He felt like he had to keep it a secret just between him and the Father in heaven. And what that did is it just made us honestly really suspicious of him because we'd just see him whoosh, you know, by the hallway or we'd hear the, the front door slam shut at mealtime and we'd hear his feet literally running, uh, you know, out of the driveway. And we think, man, like, what in the world kind of sketchy stuff is, is he sneaking off to do right now? That's not the point. Um, we can actually carry the same logic with fasting over that, that we use with the other two spiritual practices in this passage, being generous and praying. We're not paranoid about people uh, knowing that we tithe or live generously. Um, we pray together often, hopefully. Um, it's okay if, if you're doing these things, it's good and right. In fact, Jesus assumes that his people will. And that mindset would be helpful with fasting. If like we assume that if, if someone's walking with Jesus, they're gonna be living generously in his name, they're gonna be praying and communicating with him, that this practice, fasting, will be something that becomes a rhythm in life. And again, I'm preaching to myself, this is stretching for me because, um, man, it's just not the way I'm, I'm, I'm used to, but it evidently is the way of Jesus. Thirdly, 
So a negative command, a positive command, but then number three, a promise. Look with me at the last line of verse 18. Jesus says, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, again, we're not fasting for something to, to earn or deserve or twist God's arm into giving us something. No, but it is amazing to me the way God in his grace, he gives us grace upon grace. He's delighted to bless us. And this can look a number of different ways. It might come in the way of spiritual breakthrough or uh, being able to overcome temptation with sin. It might look like answer to prayer, perhaps. I don't know, but at the top of the list, I think finding it to be true that, that if we'll say no to food for a fixed amount of time, for the purpose of knowing and experiencing more of Jesus' presence in our lives. If, if that happens, if we draw near to God in this way and find that he really does draw near to us like James 4, 8 talks about, that in and of itself is the greatest reward we could ever possibly hope for or imagine. It makes me want to do it. <laughs> it makes me want to put this spiritual practice into practice to, to say, yes, Lord, I want more of you. Thank you that I'm saved by grace through faith alone that my goodness, you, you are delighted to, to lead us out of darkness and sin and death into this marvelous life and light in Christ. We need to learn a, a better way. And so how does this look practice, uh, practically? Like literally, specifically, what does it look like? We're refraining from food for a season for, for these reasons. Um, well, the most common way that people in biblical history and church history have gone about fasting is a 24 hour fast, meaning from dinner to dinner or from sundown to sundown. So just to, to kind of lay out what that looks like. Uh, you eat dinner and after you finish dinner and you might make it like a, a big dinner, but um, I like to make it a big dinner, but you eat your dinner and then you begin your fast where you refrain from food. So you say, I'm not gonna consume any calories through the rest of the evening, through the next morning, through breakfast time, through lunch time, and then you break your fast with dinner. And uh, that can be an early dinner if you want. This isn't a legalistic trip. There's no you know, hard line specifications, but you're, you're basically skipping two of the three meals for the purpose of setting apart real time with a real intention, again, not to listen and obey and respond to your body and the growling of your stomach, but instead to say, I'm gonna come before you, Lord. I'm gonna present myself to you and, and intentionally seek your face, intentionally listen and obey and respond to you, Holy Spirit. It doesn't have to be that way. That's one way and a common way. It can also be longer than that. Um, for any of you brave and ambitious souls out there, there's examples of three-day fasts, seven-day fasts, 
40-day fasts like Jesus, Moses, and Elijah did in the scriptures. And I kid you not, I have a good friend uh, that did a 40-day fast and I asked him about it and he basically said it was intense. It was a crazy time, but it was incredibly fruitful. And um, that's not very common. He's the only person that I know or I'm aware of that that's really done that. Um, but there are longer fasts that you can do. A couple practical words of wisdom regarding fasting. Uh, when you do, again, not if, but when you do, um, make sure to drink a lot of water, keep your body hydrated, your body needs that. And then also, secondly, um, I'm aware that there are several people who have real and legitimate medical issues and concerns and reasons why it would be unwise to go without food uh, for any sort of, uh, you know, period. And, um, and, and to you, I would say, well, one, it can also be shorter than that. It can be uh, not just one day, but it could be one meal of the day. Um, it could be even one item out of one meal. So maybe you just say, I'm not gonna eat meat, but I am gonna eat these other good things. Um, and also if, if you're in a place where you're just thinking, man, truly before God, like I just, it's, it's not wise for me to, to go without food. Um, God sees your heart, no worries. Uh, again, it's not a legalistic thing and uh, it's, it's, it's not that at all. So if that's where you're at, no worries. Um, it's interesting. I, I think spiritual formation, our maturation, our, our growth spiritually, I don't think it was ever meant to be passive. And, and it's interesting because in our culture, I think a lot of us are shaped unintentionally by all sorts of outward things that, that happen, that we he, hear, that we see in various media, in school, in, you know, your family background and upbringing and, and just all of this stuff, the way we think and the way we live can really be shaped without us meaning for it to shape us, but it does. Jesus is inviting us to, with the help of the Holy Spirit and, and by being intentional, to allow him to lead us in the way of Jesus, to save us out of our own folly, our own foolish ways, like we see Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, choosing instead to trust God and enjoy God, to go out and, and run away from that and, and see darkness and death take over. Jesus hits the scene. And, and he sits up on his mountain pulpit, if you would. And he begins to teach us in this beautiful new way, a new way of thinking, a new way of living. To join him in doing what humanity was purposed to do all along, to reflect and spread the image of God, the character and glory of God, the life and light and love of God throughout the world around us. And so, by way of response, what are we gonna do with this? What, what, what's next? James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Jesus, at the conclusion of this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he says that you will be blessed 
like a man who built his house on the rock, if you hear these sayings of mine and do them. And so if you're able and inclined to do so, I'd like to invite you to join us. Uh, and at some point this week to say, I'm gonna fast and just for one meal, I'm just, I'm gonna skip one meal. I'm gonna refrain from, from eating one meal and I'm gonna set some, some time apart to seek God, to pray, to read scripture, to worship perhaps, whatever that looks like for you. But, but let's lean in to this practice that, like I started out by saying, it's, it's not really anybody's favorite subject because we love food. Um, but the more I look at it, the more I study it, the more I'm realizing, my goodness, this fast is for my joy. This practice is for my good. So let's put that into practice at some point this week. But before we do, at this time, I wanna invite you to take the bread and the cup because while Jesus does assume that his people will fast, much more often than that, I'm glad to say, he also assumes and expects that his people will feast. And I'm holding a miniature cup and like a mini wafer thing. And so it's kind of funny to, to say that this is a representation of a feast. But when Jesus introduced communion, it was at a feast. It was around the Passover feast. And he said, hey, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. I'm so thrilled that we're not in a place where we have to earn our salvation. No, it's not because of what we do or because we deny ourselves. He denied himself. It's because of the work he did. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us so that we could be set free from the way of the world and invited into the way of Jesus. So let's take this together in our homes, remembering him today. God bless you guys.